Slack itself, yeah, the product changed because Slack was less than 3% remote pre-pandemic. Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back to Future Work. Today we have Brian Elliott, who spent 25 years building high growth companies and leading teams as a startup CEO, a leader at Google, and then an executive at Slack and Salesforce, where he co-founded Future Forum, a think tank focused on redesigning work through data and dialogue. Brian is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, How the Future Works, leading flexible teams to do their best work of their lives. And he's been published in the Wall Street Journal, HBR, Bloomberg, The Economist, and other publications. Today, we're going to be discussing how Future Forum's research helped Slack transition from in-person to hybrid work and all the lessons Brian learned during this time and that you can implement yourself. So let's dive in. Brian, thanks so much for being here today. Um, Your career has taken you from being a case study writer at Harvard Business School via BCG to being a startup CEO, then Google, then Slack to eventually being the co-founder and the executive leader at Future Forum, which is or was a think tank about the future of work. What should listeners know about your very impressive career? The impressive career, choppy career, or whatever you'd like to call it, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I love the work that you and the team have been doing. You know, I didn't start out with all that stuff. I started out as a uh, grocery store clerk and short order cook and industrial painter putting my way through college. After college, though, I was a math geek in college and uh, got into the analytics. And Boston Consulting Group hired me straight out of college, spent a couple of years working for them. And then they put me through business school, which was actually fantastic uh, and kind of gave me a leg up there. At HBS, at Harvard Business School, I actually ended up being a case writer for a couple of professors in the technology and operations management group. And it was sort of an opportunity to explore whether or not I actually wanted to go down the academic route myself and be a researcher. Hmm. And the truth is, my ADD and uh, being a professor really wouldn't mix very well. I, I didn't have the patience to go that route. So instead, I jumped back into BCG and then eventually into tech. And I've been working in the tech world now for 25 years, startup CEO, some great adventures there. I uh, jumped from that to Google and Slack, as you noted. But the things that are kind of in common across all that, for me at least, were I'm just curious about how things work mm. in a bunch of different ways. And I would move on when I found that I wasn't really learning anymore, when I was sort of bored with the job because it felt like it was too routine and too repetitive. Um, I also found ways in almost any situation, even when times are really tough in the startup phases, to find you know what brought me joy in the job. And usually that had something to do with, with people mm. and getting people aligned and motivated and helping them grow their own careers. But I also learned that once those things that brought me joy were overwhelmed by the things that brought me down, you know, corporate bureaucracy and administrivia, it was time to move on. Hmm. I guess there's two things that I'd pass on to anybody out there, which is there's no linear path that necessarily fits with how you get there. The jungle gym analogy works really well, at least it did for me, which is sometimes you have to move sideways to kind of get a new learning experience to move back up. And sometimes you have to move down 
And don't get hooked on titles and on the size of your team. You know, I've been a startup CEO where I've had a team of 300 and some odd people. When I first went to Google, I had a team of two, one of whom quit on the first day. <laughs> when I left Google, I was overseeing, you know, uh, we had 350 people in the product and engineering team. We had thousands of contractors that were working on the project I was doing. And I jumped to Slack where the team was roughly 50 people in the platform team. Mm. And it was just a fantastic move because I had a great experience doing that. And then I did it again at Slack uh, when the pandemic started and we had the opportunity to build something different. Future Forum was three of us just getting it off the ground. And each time it was much more about thinking about like, what am I going to learn? Where can I have impact? Mm. Letting myself get too hooked up in the title, the size of the team, all that mess that tends to nag us. Right. You just followed your curiosity and it brought you to some great places. So maybe can you share a bit about Future Forum in particular? Like, what is it? What was it intended to do? Why did you decide to start it? How did you, it sounded like you pitched it internally to Slack. Like, how did I go? Yeah, there's a couple of things on that front. One, you know, it ties back to my research and data geek aspects, right? Because really what Future Forum was about at the heart of it was research-driven insights combined with habits and practices that we're seeing companies do that were really better for people. But it was also born out of a couple of things. One, as a startup guy, I got the consultant knocked out of me pretty early. And what I learned was sort of through the school of hard knocks that that old phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast was really true. That if I wanted my team to succeed, I needed to spend a lot more time building relationships with people building trust, building a sense of belonging and purpose in the team. And that was really something that I wanted to espouse more broadly and bring out into the world. The pandemic then created this massive opportunity for a lot of us to sort of rethink how work was happening. And what happened in early 2020 at Slack was myself and a number of others found ourselves in conversations with executives at other companies we're all wrestling with really much more profound issues of hmm. how do we care for our teams, but also we're going to make major shifts and changes in policy. So I pitched Stuart Butterfield on something that was honestly his idea years ago that never came to fruition, which is Slack should have its own think tank around the future of work hmm. and said, hey, Stuart, you know, I'd love to pick this up and run with it. <laughs> give me a couple of people I can recruit into this and give us six months and see where we can take it. And I had two fantastic co-founders along with me, Helen Cup and Sheila Subramanian, who were just really amazing people that I'd known for years, hadn't worked with directly, but I knew their skills and their capabilities. I knew that we thought alike in a lot of ways, but we were also very different people and would bring different things to the equation. And so at the end of the day, what it was, was sort of a, a labor of love that turned out to be a lot bigger than any of the three of us, I think, expected going into it. Something that could have been a six-month-and-you're-done project became a three-year adventure that I think has had a lasting impact. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has. So, so what were some of the, the, the things that you do with that team? So you got stewards buy-in, Yeah, uh, you got those people together, and those were people from outside of Slack, as I remember, right? No, actually, Sheila and Helen were both at Slack. Sheila had been okay. in the marketing team, had led Slack's enterprise marketing, international expansion, a bunch of things on that front. Helen had been a strategy leader in the organization, had worked on things like pricing, international expansion and growth, was actually a product manager that was leading part of the platform team, mm. helped talk her into taking this grand leap. So both of them were at Slack along with me and at part of it. We did, though, go out and recruited partners externally. So 
we didn't want this to be just about Slack and just about digital tools. So mm-hmm. uh, Debbie Lovich at Boston Consulting Group, Ryan Anderson at Miller Knoll, and you know Tina and team at Management Leadership for Tomorrow were fantastic partners who brought different perspectives about space, global leadership, diversity, and inclusion, and could bring in you know perspective that we wouldn't have necessarily. And so it was really that grouping of a dedicated core that we're building, you know, what we're doing at Future Forum with some partners who were really going to help push us in new directions. Hmm. So then with that group, you started researching, right, about the future of work. Yeah. And obviously Slack was transforming as well, right, from a yeah. kind of chat app or communication tool to the new digital HQ. So then you started doing some of that research, like what were some of the findings over those three years that really stood out to you? And I think there's something really interesting that you said about, you know, culture eating strategy for breakfast, you know, about the fundamentals of what makes good teams. Was there a lot of new insights or was it also kind of confirming that the age old pillars of good leadership and good management still hold true? There's definitely elements of that, which is great management is really key and essential to building, you know, high-performing teams. There's plenty of research that has been out there for years that points to a lot of the same things that we found. I think there were a couple of big differences. We did actually drive some new insights and the world was just much more open. Leaders were much more open to questioning conventional wisdom, right? To rethinking the assumptions we had. I'll give you an example too. Slack itself, yeah, the product changed. But we were not a remote first company by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, part of my job in, wasn't just leading future forum, was helping us discover our own path forward because Slack was less than 3% remote pre-pandemic. It was less than 3% remote, yeah? Yeah. It was mostly like an office company. Yeah, it was in an office company completely. Offices were where and when work happened. I had an engineering leader who worked with me out of Denver, Colorado. Wow. Mike would come to San Francisco. He came to San Francisco 23 times in 2019, the year before the pandemic. Hmm. And he did it to be, quote unquote, in the room where it happens because there would be some senior review with, you know, Stuart and Cal, who's our CTO, and hmm. Tamar, our chief product officer. And Mike didn't want to be trying to dial in from Denver, unable to get a word in edgewise. Hmm. And Mike's got five kids. It was really painful. Hmm. We had this debate at Slack for years prior to the pandemic about whether we should spin up a remote team because it was so hard to recruit designers and product managers and engineers into San Francisco and New York and Vancouver and Melbourne. And we never did it because we'd never done it before. So we didn't know how to do it. But was the pain just not big enough? You know, that sounds like such a huge challenge that you're trying to get the best people to design and build Slack. And you're so reliant on the people sort of in the immediate vicinity of the office. Like, was the pain just not big enough to go out and say, okay, we got to go remote. Like, there's no other way. Apparently not, because (laughs) we opened the Denver office and hired Mike to be the leader there. We're opening up a Toronto office Hmm. for an engineering and product and design team there as well, right? We did the same thing in Dublin, did the same thing in other parts of the world. And it was just easier to replicate what we'd done before in the same place. Yeah rather than try to think through all the different ways of working. And what shifted was we got three, four months into the pandemic and Cal Henderson, our CTO, basically said, this is working a lot better than I expected. Hmm. The fears we had about productivity were unfounded, other than the horrible conditions some people were in, especially the team that I was overseeing in India. Hmm. You know, innovation and creativity and spark was still clearly there. We were being driven to build new capabilities really well. And so all of that was part of it. Go back to your question, though, too, which is, 
we were also though seeing things in the research that Future Forum was doing that helped drive some of that. So I'll give you three quick examples. One is we talk so much about location flexibility and how many days a week people should be in the office or together or whatever else. Hmm. And the research showed super quickly that time matters more than place. Giving people big blocks of time, focus time during the work week, two to three hour chunks right. was a much bigger benefit to their productivity hmm. than location flexibility. And clearly the two are tied because by the way, if you force them to commute five days a week, you'll lose some of that. And so that led to a lot of things that we were doing internally around how do we give people focused time? It also led to a lot of things from a product innovation perspective around how do you share information asynchronously so you can kill off yeah. unnecessary meetings, right? That's number one. Number two, Slack kind of got this one pretty well, but a lot of other organizations don't, and a lot of senior leaders still don't to this day, which is connection inside of a team is as much digital as it is physical. Mm. There is a core role and a really important one in getting teams together. I would never do a team that I lead or manage or am part of that doesn't get together at least once a quarter for a week to build belonging and meals together. Hmm. There's so many ways in which people can stay connected digitally with one another, socially, where you can build you know, global connections within an organization. We're not two generations of digital natives in the workforce. And hmm. so you know, I'm in my 50s. I didn't grow up with all of this. I've had to learn it myself. But digital builds connection as much as in real life builds connection at this point. And the third one that was less obvious to me as a senior white male non-primary caregiver executive was there's just a huge opportunity to rethink inclusion in the workplace that flexibility brings to all of us. So we saw this in the data from early on. Women more than men wanted flexibility. Caregivers, especially women with children, needed it more than men. We could see global trends that pretty much tied to how good a country's infrastructure was around caregiving. Mm -hmm. The U.S. was far worse than any other developed country when it came to you know, primary caregivers' needs for flexibility because the U.S. does not have good maternity leave policies, does not have a good you know, pre-kindergarten childcare infrastructure. Mm. Australia was better. Uh, UK was not far behind the US. Germany and France looked pretty good. Mm. And so it's just one of those things where you could kind of look at the data and go, there's issues here. And you can see the same thing when it comes to people with disabilities, to racial and ethnic differences, especially in the US, where we could get the data out. Those research findings were the type of thing that we would then try to make sure that we helped executives understand so that as they were thinking about their own approaches, yeah. they didn't do it just with the perspective of, here's what worked for me when I was going through the system. Because let's face it, a lot of our employees who are digital natives, who are not you know white, male, non-primary caregivers, they face a much different world than we did at that point. Yeah, definitely. We came in through the workforce in like a totally different kind of situation. And then we have to think about how people enter the workforce today and it's totally different. And we have like, we need, we need to have a very different perspective. So you have like three really interesting findings here around, you know, time mattering more than location, I think, in, in order to make people as kind of productive and creative as possible. The fact that time together matters, but it doesn't mean that we have to be together all the time. Probably the opposite almost, right? Yep. And then this like huge opportunity to inclusion. And, and right before you also said that your research showed that the fear that productivity would drop and that you know people's ability to be creative and to collaborate actually wasn't as affected as maybe we thought when we moved digitally. Yeah. So when you then bring 
these insights to to companies and to leaders what gets adopted easily and what is maybe even to this day still quite difficult for people to kind of get their head around and to actually put into practice I'll tell you, the thing that doesn't work is to just give them the data. I mean, mm. I love the data. I love the research. I love the insights. But if all you do is give them the data, mm. you're going to hit a roadblock very quickly because unfortunately, there's just too hard. To th- when you've never experienced a different way of working, it's too hard of a bridge to cross to try to invent it out of whole cloth. Mm. What you need to do is combine the data with storytelling and tactical examples so let me, let me give you one. When it comes to creativity and innovation, the thing that I've heard probably 100,000 times at this point is, you know, we just need to get the whiteboard back in front of a whiteboard and do some brainstorming so we can come up with creative ideas. And the research will tell you the majority of whiteboarding sessions in front of our group think, right? Because the thing that happens is someone who um, talks a lot like me is the one that's grabbing the pen at the front of the room yeah, and they're commanding that pen, right? And they're writing things down and they're the most senior person in the room who's been around for a while. And if you're new or not in the majority or have a different opinion, if you're really daring, you might share it, but you might also just sit on your hands and not share it at all. And that insight might be helpful to leaders, but what's more helpful is to then say, okay, let me give you a different tactic and a way that you can actually tackle this, which is like this concept of brain writing. Mm. So you've got a problem you're trying to solve as a team. You've got some information around it. You give the prompt. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. Here's the information we've got to the team. You give them three days or a week to put together, not a full write-up, but I just want your three bullet point thoughts on what we might try to do around this. Mm. Give me three to five ideas. Write them down. Spend time on this before we get together. And when we come together, all of us toss all of our ideas at the same time into a Google Doc, a Microsoft Doc, the chat, a whiteboard app, wherever it happens to go. And what that does is it just gets more ideas out on the table, right? It avoids that pre-filtering that happens that says, oh man, Brian's holding the pen or Dan's holding the pen. I'm not about to toss this out because I want to hear what they say first. And you just get a lot more ideas that way. And that's a redesign of how we work hmm. that's a lot better than you know the group think process around whiteboards or relying on the random chance encounter at a water cooler. And this is part of the bigger idea that we need to redesign and rethink how we work rather than just taking our in-office practices and put them online. Because exactly, I think we've seen that doesn't work. Yeah. What we've done too often is just lift and shift, right? We've just sort of taken... That's, by the way, what the vast majority of companies and organizations did in 2020 and 2021. We had the same meetings. Matter of fact, we had more meetings. We just did them all digitally on Zoom Hmm. and we got burnt out because we were facing ourselves all the time. And we didn't really step back and say, you know what, we're going to fundamentally rethink our approach to mentorship. Hmm. We're going to redesign our onboarding process. Hmm. We're going to think about how we, you know, train new employees. How do we be more intentional about things like how we pair them up with people they should be in contact with to help them build networks? Mm. Like there's so many things that we could do if we should pick a problem, pick an area, mm. and think about what are the outcomes we're trying to accomplish and how might we both experiment but take practices from other companies and try stuff out that might give us a better outcome than simply taking what we've done for the past 20 years and trying to do it on a video call. Absolutely. And that's one thing to explain that to leaders and to executives in companies. 
Another is to actually get this to become the new way of working at all levels of the organization, right? So we just released some research around what do hybrid and remote employees think about their direct managers and the way that they rate those direct managers on how good are they to kind of embrace some of these hybrid and remote best practices is not too good. I could say that they're not too positive about their leader's ability. So how can we also get managers, especially newer managers, to who probably are digital natives to think in this way and to work in this new way? I'd love to hear more, even in terms of what you guys saw too, in terms of what are the habits and practices that the good ones do adopt. We ran into this ourselves within uh, Slack, the organization, and I've heard it from so many of the executives that we worked with, which is the pinch point for all this is your frontline managers, right? And let's face it, we've not done a good job for decades now of giving them much training or support. You know, your frontline manager is somebody who has just happened to be the more, most senior experienced individual contributor on the team hmm. who wanted a promotion, got a promotion, and is now a manager with very little training or support. There's a couple of things that we can do to kind of unpack that. Hmm. One is let's just start with the fundamentals. Not everybody wants to be a manager, really. And so what I've been a big proponent of is in as many situations as you can, think about how you have two tracks for employees hmm. where you've got the manager track, but you've also got an expert track that goes up preferably as high as VP level in an organization. Engineering teams have been doing this for a long time now. We did it at Google. We did it at Slack. Hmm. The architect, right, who can get paid as much, get as big of a title as a VP in an organization, but is leading through expertise, not through managing people. I've seen it done in design. I've seen it done in product management. I've seen it done in content teams within marketing. You know, I think there's a lot of places where we could apply that because you really want people that want to lean into the job of leading people through management and teaching them and training them. Mm-hmm. Second huge one is we've got to give them support and tactical experience. So some of what we did, even in the early days at Slack, and we've done this with other companies too, is a couple of things. One, make sure that they've got support networks of other managers that they can talk with. Mm. Start off by facilitating those groups. You know, Your people team can help do this to get it off the ground. But you want them to find people they can go to and ask for help. But you've also got to get super tactical. Like, how do you run a good one-on-one with your team? Mm. What are the three questions that you should ask every single week? Things like, hey, what did we say we were going to get done last week? And how did it go? What are your priorities for this week to make sure that we're aligned? And what's blocking you? What can I help you unblock to get out of your way? Giving managers super tactical how-to examples is really going to give them a leg up at how they manage and lead their teams. It can't just be giving them euphemisms like, hey, you need to be an emotionally capable, vulnerable leader to be good. Yeah. You got to show them what that means Yeah, and give them concrete you know, tools they can use to do that. Which is, by the way, one of the best practices that employees rated their managers lowest on yep. in terms of, are they being empathetic? Like, are they understanding? That was one of the things where we actually saw the lowest score. So yep. we basically saw pretty high marks on things like flexibility and adaptability. So are managers able to embrace this new way of working and balancing, you know, working together while a lot of things are changing kind of externally? We also saw some pretty good scores on setting clear expectations. So providing guidelines, deadlines, performance goals, right? You know what work to do, yeah. even when you're not sitting together with your manager. So that's pretty important. But then the things where we saw really low scores uh, beyond empathy was inclusion. So inclusion was actually the one that scored the lowest. Yeah. 
are managers really thinking about everyone on the team and making sure that everyone has equal opportunities was very low. Onboarding was very low. Is there like a good program in place? Is the manager equipped and able to bring new team members on board in these kind of remote and hybrid contexts and documenting, right? Yeah. So, you know, you just said something that we used to do, which was sitting around the whiteboard. You know, I think some people have kind of transplanted on online and now we sit around the online whiteboard. But like you said, then you know, is there a document afterwards? Like, are people being able to input on that? Maybe even if they're in a different time zone. So that's where we saw some of the low marks. And then you really think about what can companies do to enable these managers to upskill in those areas? Now, that's great insight, Dan. And, and uh, thanks for going into it on that specific set of areas, because, you know, you can't just teach empathy. You got to give them tools for showing empathy and how to do that, right? Yeah. And I've got some empathy for managers because they're the pinch point in an organization, in our research and others too. They're the most burnt out, right? Middle managers are more burned out than the executives by far. They're also more burnt out than the ind individual contributors. Often they're carrying their own individual load as well, right? Of work they need to get to do, as well as care and feeding of the team. And that's, that's a hard spot to be in. Yeah. And so it's often hard for them too to show that vulnerability. There's a couple of things you can do, though, and that sort of help you take steps in getting there. Tactically, things like the weekly staff meeting that's got an icebreaker question at the beginning of it. You know, it can be the silly question, you know, we're entering fall in the U.S., so it's pumpkin spice latte season. Where do you stand on pumpkin spice latte happens to be my favorite seasonal question. That, that sounds too controversial as an icebreaker question. That could be like a three-hour debate. It was. My team went off on this for about 15 minutes one day. And it turns out, by the way, I didn't know this either, but there's no pumpkin in pumpkin spice. It's just the spices. Huh. I learned that one teammate who shall remain nameless hates orange vegetables. It's all the stuff that you get into and you learn when you do this. Yeah. But that's humanizing, right? It helps. And just reminding people that it doesn't have to be the question that starts off with, how was your week at work last week? Or what did you do this weekend? You can find ways to explore what kind of Olympic skier would you want to be? What was the worst haircut you ever had? Just get to know people. Hmm. Personal user manuals are one of my favorite things. It can sound super cheesy and you can make them super cheesy about like, what's your astrological sign? But the really important stuff is like, how do you like to communicate? Mm. Are you a morning person or an evening person? What's your life setup? What do I need to be aware of as a boss? And the thing that you got to do as a manager that I tell people all the time is you got to go first. It's sort of your job to set the tone, share yours out there and tell your team, you know, what some of your own feedback points are of areas that you're looking for development, help and support and sort of being open and vulnerable around doing that. And then to your, your other point about how, you know, what a team's norms are, there's no better thing than a team level agreement. And it's the manager doesn't have to do the upkeep on all this stuff, right? Hmm. There are always people on your team that want to make the team a better place to work because let's face it, you know, it's the old people don't leave companies, they leave managers, they really leave teams. Hmm. And if you can have people volunteer, raise their hand, to help you craft things that are in your team level agreement, which is things like, what tools do we use to communicate off hours so that you don't have to monitor Slack plus Teams plus email plus Zoom mm. plus PagerDuty plus five other tools? Mm. How do we make decisions? You know, there's just so many things that are the norms and habits of a team that if you're doing that, when somebody new joins, they get the document, they review it. They can also start asking questions and saying, I don't know what that even means. So help me out. Yeah. It's just a much better starting point. And 
too often managers think that all this stuff falls on them when there's almost always somebody in your team that please don't abuse them for this, but that's willing to pitch in and help, you know, shepherd this through and help build in, you know, better habits and practices because maybe someday they want to be a manager too. How would you find that person if you're a manager sitting there thinking, well, that sounds great. I can offload some of this stuff to someone else. How, how would you find that person on the team? Ask for help and ask for ideas and ask for volunteers. Hmm. I do think this also goes back to the opportunity question. You've also got to look around and not keep reassigning it to the same person all the time. And please, God, be aware of gender differences. Hmm. The note taker shouldn't always be the only woman on the team. That's a horrifying place to be in. So you need to think about things which are, what are leadership and growth opportunities for members of your team? Mm -hmm. These are leadership and growth opportunities. But you've also got to move them around within your team over time to make sure that they're not all landing on someone's back, number one, yeah. and they're not being disproportionately given only to the people who look like you, or worse yet, that feel like administrivia tasks that are being handed to people that don't look like you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we could definitely talk data and stories and ideas for a lot more, but we're uh, almost at the end of our time. So I really want to just ask one final question, which I ask everyone, which is, after all of this, what is your big wish for humanity? Something you could put on the billboards and share to the world? Man, I think the biggest thing that I'd like to see people continue to do is just be open to new ideas hmm. and to listen to your own teams in order to find them, especially for executives and executive leaders. And I had to unlearn this myself we're all expected to have all the answers, right? Hmm. We're expected to be seldom wrong and never in doubt, which is a phrase that got burned into me when I was in my 20s and I had to unlearn over the course of decades. Hmm. But you know what that does? That just sets you up for failure because all that's doing is saying, you got to be smarter than everybody else in your organization. And there's no way that that's going to be accurate. Hmm. At the same time, when I say that to people, what I get back in return is, but then how do I motivate the team? I really want people to be able to do two things at once. Hmm. You could have massive aspirations, giant mountains that you want to climb as a leader, point towards those goals, but also invite people along for the journey and say, hey, look, we're going to climb that mountain. We're going to do it together, but I need your help in finding the right path for us hmm. because I know I can't do it all by myself. If you can do that, the engagement of your team, of your employees goes up dramatically. And they will then share with you thoughts and ideas that maybe you didn't have that might be, you know, where you might run into some problems, but also some ways in which you might get up there faster together. Beautiful. So listen to your team. You don't have to all have all the answers. Aspiration, nothing wrong with it, but be open to new ideas. Beautiful. And it speaks to that sense of curiosity that you were talking about in the beginning, which has always kind of driven you in your career. You don't need to have all the answers, but you need to be curious about what's possible. I hope we can all get there. I still hope that I can always get there. And some days I do, and some days I don't. <laughs> Wonderful. As such is life. Okay, Brian, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate you having me. I think that was a great discussion. So let's talk about how you can implement these insights. Number one, when matters more than where. One of the key insights from Future Forum is that while we talk a lot about location flexibility and how many days a week people should be in the office, time actually matters more than play. So consider the balance that you give between synchronous and in-person activities and asynchronous work and prioritize focused work time. Number two is that 
Even today, a lot of leaders are not good at connecting people well, both online and offline. So make sure that people have the time and space to connect as people and continue building those bonds, even if you see each other only once a quarter. Number three is to create an inclusive environment. So the other big insight from the Future Forum research is that flexibility gives us the ability to think about how we can create a much more inclusive environment. As Brian shared from their data, women and caregivers wanted much more flexibility than men. And he also noted that there are vast differences between countries and their policies that drive the need. So keep that in mind. Then if we want to change minds, we need to bring not just data, but also storytelling and practical ideas. So if you want to make a case for more flexibility in where and when people work, make sure you bring the data, but also tell the story and give the practical idea. So in Brian's whiteboard example, he brought the data that yes, we can be creative even online, but he also shared the context and he also gave a practical idea of how we can replace things that we were doing to be creative offline in the online world. In this case, replacing the offline whiteboard with an asynchronous online brain write instead of a brainstorm. The fifth insight is that we cannot just lift and shift. So instead of copy pasting things that worked well in the office, rethink them completely. So think again about meetings. Do you really need all of them? Are there things that can be handled through online collaboration? And besides this, rethink mentorship, onboarding, training, all these things that we used to do in the office. Think about the outcome that you're actually trying to achieve and then think objectively about the best way to get there without holding on to how we used to do things. The last one is around supporting managers. So whether you are managing a team yourself or you're leading other managers, we really need to rethink how we support managers. And as Brian mentioned, managers are more burnt out even than individual contributors, even more than executives. So his solution is twofold. One, give people who don't want to be managers that opportunity. Make them experts, give them senior positions, but don't make it so that in order to rise the ranks and to get better at what you do, that you need to become a manager. And two, give people who are managers the practical support for key elements of management, like good one-on-ones and successful team meetings and understanding each other's personal operating manuals. And then finally, on a more personal level, I think Brian shared two really great lessons that we should all take to heart. One is that there is no straightforward route to achieving success. So Brian called this the jungle gym analogy, which I think is a pretty good one. But you know, you may have to move laterally or even downwards to get new knowledge or expand your skills. And it's really important to focus on growth and development rather than titles or positions. And two, we need to unlearn the idea that you need to know it all as a leader. That idea that Brian mentioned of seldom wrong, never in doubt, just isn't true anymore. So set ambitious goals, but then make it a team effort, ask for help and achieve it together. So I thought those were eight beautiful lessons that we can all learn from, and I hope you can put them in into practice as well. And I hope to see you again. In two weeks, we will have Jennifer Dalski on, who is the founder of Rising Team and a previous executive at Facebook, Yahoo and Change.org, which is another really great conversation. So I hope to hear you in the next episode.